Good morning, Mercy Road. How you doing this morning? Yeah, you guys got some energy. Hey, can you give it up for the ushers for getting you all in here this morning? Appreciate you guys. Uh, we're honored that you took time out of your busy weekend to be with us, to come gather in this space. People don't do that today in our culture, so seriously, thank you guys for doing that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We started this church for you. We believe nobody's too far from God to experience life change through Jesus, that the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. If you've been in churches or been Christian for decades, welcome. I'm going to tell you this morning is going to be a little bit different as we conclude our four-week teaching series called No Other Gods. If you've been with us, we've been studying that one of the most important commandments, the Shema in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. That there are no other gods before the one true God of the universe. And while in ancient Hebrew time, they built a golden calf and worshiped it, and we had clear idolatry of worshiping something that wasn't God. Often in our culture today, the idols that you and I are prone to worship other than God, and remember, worship is something that takes our adoration, our passion, our time, our talents, our treasures, the things that we worship with our life other than God still exist today. And so can you give it up for Pastor Nate for doing a great job the last two weeks talking about the idol of possessions and money, the busyness in our culture. And this final week, I'm going to conclude and wrap up the entire teaching series. I'm also going to deal with uh, an idol that is incredibly important to me. And I want to tell you, as we get into this, uh, this is not meant for you to think about other people in your life and how you hope they hear it. This is meant for us to take into ourselves, not to judge other people. This is not a place of judgment. This needs to be a place of reconciliation, a, a place that we can be honest about who we are, a place free from shame and guilt. Amen? Amen. And so as we do this, we're going to ask God speak to us uh, through his word. And I'll tell you, as I get into this, parents out there, uh, this is a PG-13 message, all right? So just heads up on that. We are going to be talking about sexual idolatry this morning a topic I think is incredibly, not only difficult to address, I literally, before I came in here this morning, I'm, can I be honest? I, I didn't do this at the last service. I didn't want to come. <laughs> Even between the last service, I was in there praying, God, wh why did you make me do this this week? We're two weeks from Easter. I I'm supposed to preach on things that make people feel happy and good about yourselves, so you invite people to Easter services. Is that too honest? Like, and so I, I feel like what um, I'm addressing today is not something I wanted to, but I do feel like it's incredibly important in our culture because we can't talk about idolatry and not talk about sexual idolatry. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you have young children in here that you don't want to hear that message, it's okay. Okay, nobody, nobody worry, but I'm going to pray and you can do like the ninja prayer thing where you kind of sneak the kids out. We have amazing children's ministry. High school is in, in high school, meeting in the high school room right now in the hub. And so uh, do what's best for you and your family. That said, invi I invite you to power on your Bibles or turn in the one in the book rack to Revelation chapter 21. And I thought, well, if we're talking about sexual idolatry, I want to begin in Revelation chapter 21 which has nothing to do with sexual idolatry. 
So you might say, why are we studying this? I, I think because it is the beginning of understanding what this whole series is really about and why these idols are very important. Here's what it says. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, our eyes love the King James, behold, like it's emphatic, look up, pay attention. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them which, by the way, was the whole point of Jesus coming. In John chapter 1, he begins with talking about that the God of the universe came to, to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us, the other gospel talks about. He, he, he prioritizes that he wants to tabernacle or dwell with us, that this body that we've been given is just a temporary dwelling place, but we have an eternal dwelling place, an eternal body that will be with God in heaven one day. And so this is a picture after not only the crucifixion and resurrection, but now all these thousands of years later of when Jesus will return and put the world right. And we will see God and be with him and he will dwell with us. And it uses this analogy of a bride and a groom to talk about the level of intimacy and covenant relationship that we are intended to have with God. To actually hear and experience and to know him, that's what heaven will be like. The end of that verse three says, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older of things has passed away. It says that one day you and I are gonna be in the presence of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was crucified as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, our wrongdoing, all our shame and our guilt. If we repent of our sin, he takes it from us and makes us new. We're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And one day he will come back and put the world right. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be with God in paradise forever. And that when we die, or if our loved ones die, and they know Jesus, they go to be like the the thief on the cross, they go to be in paradise with Jesus in that moment. But one day in the new heaven and the new earth, we will get to live with God eternally. I just summarized the whole New Testament right there for you. Are you good? We can all go home now. You know, I, I share that because it's really important that we understand what eternity is going to be like. And he says in verse four that he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. If you haven't experienced pain and suffering in this life, you have not lived long enough. That this world is not as it should be. The scriptures talk about the enemy is at work here. The, the Satan, the Hasatan, the adversary, the devil. That he's come, it says in John 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. And you can see it in our culture today. And that God is waiting until the last person receives Christ until Jesus will return so that everybody that wants to be there can be there. And that that intimacy we have with God will be like nothing you've ever experienced here on earth. As we talk about idolatry and particularly sexual idolatry today, I want us to remember it's that intimacy with God of knowing him and experiencing him, not just in heaven, but right now that we're really concerned about, that any sin or wrongdoing, any form of idolatry breaks us of that relationship 
with God, and there's nothing better, nothing more meaningful in our life. And so that's what I want to talk about. Are you ready to, to pray? Let's do it. God, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for all those who got up this morning uh, and you know didn't have a lot of traffic on Sunday, but had traffic in the parking lot, and then had to maneuver family into the kids' check-in and get into this space, and they may or may not have gotten a cup of coffee yet. And I just pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit that is here with us in the room right now might get rid of my words as a fallible human being. And somehow through your scriptures would speak to us. Been in church long enough, God, that we just want an encounter with you. We, we want to experience you. We want to know you. And God, I believe that that's what changes lives. I believe that every person in here is valued, God, that you were, they were created in your image. And so, God, may they feel your love and compassion as we talk about a very difficult subject this morning. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. And all God's family said, amen. 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 Uh, have you ever, like, experienced God, like, really experienced God? Where you knew he was real, but, like, not just in your head. Like, he, you actually could tell he was with you in a moment. I see, like at the last service, a number of people shaking their heads. Yeah, I've had that kind of moment. I imagine there are some of you that are like, nope, <laughs> hasn't happened for me. And so I want to describe for you this morning the few times in my life I've actually had that kind of experience. It wasn't the audible voice of the Lord. I didn't see an angel of God. Like my whole world didn't turn upside down. Well, maybe once or twice, but it was mainly just knowing and experiencing God in a moment. I remember one of the early times, I was 19 years old, and I had been uh, joined a fraternity house, and I was doing pretty much every form of idolatry we've been studying. And I can remember like beginning to pray and encounter God, and I wasn't really ready to get rid of the sin in my life, but I was ready to experience God. And I remember very distinctly, I was in a play, and... <laughs> Dude, I grew up like in sports and stuff, so I never really did that sort of thing. And then in college, I was in a Shakespearean play. This is true. I was Banquo in Macbeth. I still mow my lines, but the people who've been here for 12 years won't let me share them anymore. So you're out of luck. But I can remember I was getting ready to go out and to perform on stage. And I had this moment where I'm, I was on this side of the stage. I remember this very distinctly, walking from backstage, and I was walking on, and I had this moment of just panic come over me. Like, oh, man, I can't do this. You ever been just like, have a total panic attack? All you IU and Purdue fans had them very recently. <laughs> been a tough week for Big Ten people out there. Uh, and I can remember I was walking on the stage, and I just, I was like, I'm gonna try this God thing. And I just, I prayed. And I said, God, um, I know you don't care about Shakespeare's play, but uh, I'm, I'm really overwhelmed right now. And could you just like give me some peace? And I felt this overwhelming warmth come over me and just a peace that, that I didn't understand. I don't think it's because God wanted me to perform well. I think it's because God wanted me to know how real he was in my life. And I went out there and I nailed those lines, baby. I nailed them. <laughs> Bakewell has never been done like that. And I can remember, I got done, it's like, okay, God, I want more of that. And so I began to serve God in, in ministry, started a Bible study in the fraternity house. And then I, I went with Ben Glenn, our student pastor. I became an intern for him. This is true. At 19, I was an intern for Ben. And I went with him to this Christian youth camp in Tennessee where he was speaking. And I served for a couple weeks helping out 
leading students and small groups and that kind of stuff. And I was coming back to Indiana and on the way, I was in a car by myself and I was like, I want to stop for a moment. I need a break. And I went to a, a state park somewhere in Tennessee. I don't know where it was, but I was literally like the only human being alive in the state park that day. And I drove to this area where I found a lake. No, I did not see another human being for miles. And it just hit me. No one's around here, but God. And I decided I was going to jump into the lake. And so I did. I jumped into the lake, and I can remember, uh, yeah, you may not be a nature person. You're like, that sounds more like hell than heaven to me. Like, for me, though, I was floating in this lake with this beautiful scenery and nature, and, the, and, and God's presence was so real to me. I had this overwhelming joy. I started crying in the lake. <laughs> I, you know, like, you have these few moments where you just know how God, a real God is. When we started the church, it happened in a moment of prayer. I was outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I got on my knees that night in this dirty hotel room, and I prayed, God, if you want me to do anything, you want our family to go anywhere, you want us to go overseas, I want to be in the center of your will, what do you want us to do? And he said, I've got the perfect place, Indiana. <laughs> it's like, I need like a little tuning device, because I don't think I heard that right, God. And uh, I prayed, and I had this real, most real moment with God, and I knew I was supposed to move to Indiana, start a church, and three friends of mine from high school would help, and all of it happened. And I just want to tell you, those moments don't happen that often in my life. But when they do, man, I hold on to it. Because it's like, it reminds me of that throne room in heaven in Revelation 21, where every tear is wiped away, the pain is gone. You know how real God is. That's why this idolatry stuff is so important. Because what it wants to do is to break that intimacy that we are meant to have with our Creator. In particular, the area of sexual idolatry in our culture is so prevalent, we don't even notice it anymore. You know that every one of you who bought an automobile in the last few years, you may not have been enticed to purchase it for this reason, but they have attempted you to get, that, to get you to buy that item, not because the car runs well and works well, but because they're selling you an identity, even a sexual identity as attractiveness and what you could be like if you had this car and uses everything in our culture. Look at the advertisements in our online, in our movies, in our TV shows, on Netflix of what gets us and entices us to purchase or to watch things. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he knows that sexual issues can be one of the biggest forms of idols in our life. Many of us in this room right now, no, this is not a place of judgment, all right? Every human being in here was created in the image of God. He loves you. As we talk about stuff today, if it brings up hard things and you feel like, I, I could never change, this God thing isn't for me, I, I want to tell you he loves you as you are. There are no mistakes in the way that God creates people. He loves you. But we also have to take the truths of Scripture and go, okay, God, how can I learn to love you back? the way that you first loved me, to trust you in this area. And so I want to talk about how to resist sexual idolatry. What kills me on this particular issue is, you know, when I was a kid growing up, we used to have magazines. You remember that, some of you? Some of you remember it. Like, you know, as kids today, they don't even like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. We used to have magazines and stuff. Like pornography, there was a, a room in the, the video store. Remember Blockbuster? There, there was a room in the video store you couldn't get into unless you were a certain age. And now, sometimes at 10, 11 years old, 
We give a child a device that gives them access to every form of content on the universe and the known planet, including the area of sex and sexuality. And we're exposing and training children to things that you and I who are are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, never, never had to resist. And so my goal this morning, please hear my heart, is not to come across with judgment towards any person in the room. We're all struggling. But to be honest about a form of idolatry that wants to break intimacy with you and God. And so if you want to resist sexual idolatry in a hyper-sexualized culture that tells you you're not complete unless you have these experiences, and when that experience no longer is good enough for you, move on to the next experience, that instead, number one, if you're taking notes, you must make Jesus your greatest desire, your greatest desire. Now, that seems simple, but I think it's probably the most important point of the message. If you just will this area of your life, you're like, I'm going to stop looking at that stuff. I'm going to stop participating in those things. I'm going to start changing. It's never going to happen, okay? Like from a Christian perspective, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then take this as just a study of what Christians believe. But what I want to tell you this morning is it's never going to happen if you don't make Jesus your greatest identity. In fact, the Greek word in the New Testament for desire is epithemia. Epithemia means strong desire. And it could be good or it could be evil. Let me give you a few examples of epithemia, of strong desire. First, Luke 22, verse 15. This is Jesus. He said to them, I have epithemiaed, eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. He epithemia, he strongly desired to hang out with his friends, his disciples, before he would go to the cross. He epithemias, he strongly desires to commune with you today. And that's what we remember in uh, communion like we will on Good Friday. Another example of this, Philippians 1.23, I am torn between the two, Paul writes, I epithemia, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, he's in a prison cell writing this letter to the church in Philippi, and he says, I would really like to go. I strongly desire, I epithemia, to be with God. But as long as he has me taking another breath on this planet, I'm going to be used for his purposes. Our epithemia could be for God and God's epithemia for us. But then 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. It is God's will, Paul writes in one of his early letters, around 48 or 49 AD. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Why? That each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans. The, the phrase there, not just one word, but two words, passionate lust is the word epithemia. That our epithemia could be for God and his desires, or our epithemia could be for lustful desires that even the pagans who don't believe in God and worship false idols worship. Who do not know God, verse 6, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. You know, as I was getting ready to share this today, talking about epithemia and all this stuff, sexual desires, I was, I was like, man, I don't want to do this. And I realized the reason I don't want to do it is because I want you guys to like me. <laughs> no, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to share this. Come on. Most of you don't even want to hear this. But, but we do it because in the end, we want intimacy with God. And, and it says there that, 
that we're rejecting not the instruction of humans, but of, of God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That if we want those moments of intimacy where God is so real and the joy and the peace that, that breaks through the anxiety and the worry and the shame and the guilt that so many of us live every day of our lives through, that it's only going to come if we prioritize by putting God first, that, that we have no other gods, no other things before him that take our, our time, our talents, our treasures, our worship. That's why it says in the Old Testament, in Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That delighting in him first, desiring him first, will have the overflow of the good desires God wants for us in our life. Number one, if you want to resist sexual idolatry, you have to make Jesus your greatest desire. Number two, you have to find your identity in being a child of God. Now, I'll tell you, this is really the only controversial point of the sermon and, and I want to tell you today, uh, again, God created every human being in his image, and he loves you. And as we talk about sexual addiction, struggles and questions over sexual desires and attractions, things in our culture that become political and divisive, I want you to hear that is not my heart. I don't, that's definitely not God's heart. What he's wanting us to do is to connect with him. And I believe that you could be here and disagree with what I'm about to share. But I think it's my job to tell you at least what I, I and our leadership think that God shares in Scripture. And I think that in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, it talks about where Jesus found his identity. What, what was primary in his life. This is before he, he goes and goes to the cross. This is before he even resists the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. So if we're talking about resisting idolatry, let's see how Jesus did it. This is right before he's going to go be tempted in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were bab being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, and when you behave well, I am well pleased. That's how most of us read that verse. In our own lives, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Before everything is done and complete, he is well pleased with him because he's his perfect son. The Bible teaches because, like I said earlier, Jesus was crucified as an atoning sacrifice, that we're not grafted into the family of God. Romans says that, Paul writes in the Church of Rome, he says that we can call him Daddy, Abba. It's Aramaic for like an intimate relationship with your father. And you're like, I didn't have a good relationship with my biological father. The good news is he is the perfect God, the perfect father, the perfect uh, parent in every way, shape, and form that loves you just where you are, no matter what you're going through. He wants to, to meet your desires and have his desires be the overflow in your life. But Jesus knows before he resists temptations that his primary identity is found first and foremost in being a son of the living God. And for you and I, we have to realize the spiritual battle we find ourselves in. Every day, you and I walk out. These idols we've been talking about and certainly sexual idolatry is after every single one of us in this room. The enemy, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants to use this to get married men in the room to pursue lustful things. He wants to use this to get married women in the room to pursue lustful things in our own ways. 
He, he wants to get the single people in the room to prioritize uh, the, the sexual desires of your heart first rather than to put him first and trust him with everything else. He wants to get the people in our room in our culture today where sex and sexuality is often discussed in our colleges and in our education systems with no recollection or mention of God and what his best is. And I think if we're having conversations for how atheist culture should live, that's an okay thing. But if we're talking about how someone who wants to experience God, historical Christianity wants to live, we have to base our beliefs off of what scripture says. And I share that, um, you know, and there are different ways of viewing that because obviously this brings up the issue of if our primary identity, one of the things that when people get baptized, we ask them, is it your desire to make him the primary identity of your life? The number one thing, if he asks you to change anything, would you change it? We don't assume that everybody is free from sin when they get baptized and that they've got every form of unrepented sin figured out yet. But they, we have to be willing to submit no matter what it is. If God shows us, we're going to lay that over to him. And if there are things in our life that we will never lay over to God, those, those things are what is keeping us from that direct intimacy with God itself. And so it brings up the, the question of, of sexual identity, which isn't the heart of this morning's message. But I don't think it'd be fair to bring all of this up and not at least share that you know our church has held to historical Christian teachings traditional teachings in this particular area, and we all know what that means. But I want to tell you that no matter what you're here and struggling with, I think Andy Stanley talks about this, that the church should be the safest place for people to have honest conversations because we were all created in the image of God, and we could actually see God begin to work in us. We're also not the place that uh, you know, identifies you in a particular way and then says that we're just going to pray away all of your concerns in this area. But we're also not going to teach what the Bible doesn't teach. We're going to teach that, that this way of honoring God in your sexual life that he's demonstrated to us between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship is a historical Christian teaching. And I know that gets difficult. And I encourage you, uh, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, there is great discussions being had. We've been giving people this link, centerforfaith.com. And they were on both ends of the spectrum. I imagine you will find people in this room who disagree with both ends of the spectrum on this site. And so uh, we didn't create the site. It's just a place for a conversation. And I don't know why in our culture today we can no longer have conversations about things. This is such an important spiritual thing for us to be able to discuss. We can have a political conversation about things. That's not what we're having this morning. We're having a, a conversation about what the Bible teaches and about our theological beliefs and how we create intimacy with God. And it, what he says is no matter what it is in our life, in the area of sex that we put before God, that we have to have this first, this is who I am, and I can't be anything else unless God fits into this, that is a form of idolatry for each of us. Let me give you an example. For the person in the room who's like, I don't know why God made me such a hypersexual person, I'm a heterosexual man who chases after women, and I want to stop, but I just can't stop. It's just the way I am. I'll never be able to change. I want to tell you that's the lies of the enemy whispering into your mind that that's who you are. You are first and foremost a son of the living God who can become who God created you to be. I had a friend once who talked about uh, uh, struggles with pornography, and it was so frustrating to him that we just assumed that every Christian would automatically struggle with pornography, as if we could never break that, as if that was the one area of sin that the enemy has eternally won over God. 
And it's just not true. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And no matter what we're facing, the spirit of God can give us the power to overcome that thing. And let, me, let me give you an illustration I saw online that I thought was really powerful. I got uh, two cans of Coke, both the real thing, uh, except one of them is empty and the contents have been poured out and the lid is open. And the other one hasn't been opened and it's entirely full. And, and I want to tell you that for many of us in here, you may say, why is this even really that important? Why is it really that important in this area? If I struggle with this, why does it matter? And some of you might even say, on the other, I, I talked about that God loves every person right where you're at, and this must be a safe place and not a place of judgment. But if we really believe some of the things that scriptures teach, then some may say, why do you have to force it onto people? Why do you have to bring up the discussions with young people and kids and children? Why does that matter? Well, because, you know, if I go to a 10-year-old and I give them a phone and they can open themselves up to every form of sexual sin at the beginning at age 10, what do you think is going to happen over their lifetime? They weren't prepared to have those types of images and conversations yet. The same is true with some of the conversations around sexual identity and sexual gender issues. And I want to tell you again, everybody in here, you're loved. And if we're going to be honest, there's not going to be a room this size where we got multiple people that have these questions and you're going to think that you can't actually follow God because something's wrong with you. No, I want to tell you, God loves you right where you're at. But the reason I want to say that sometimes we have to think of the younger generations and allowing them access to things and ideas and concepts because sometimes they're not ready spiritually for it. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus found his identity being the living God. If, if we haven't found our identity and know who we are in Christ yet, how are we going to resist the temptations of the devil? He, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. <laughs> Took me a second. Uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. By the way, when we talk about these issues, we always want to turn the other people into the enemy, right? It's them and us. And what I want to tell you this morning is the Bible teaches us that that's not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And he's coming to still kill and destroy in this area of our lives. And so we have to put on the full armor of God so we can resist his schemes Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And when we have somebody who hasn't found their identity in Christ yet, that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God that gives them the spirit, that not of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline, self-control to overcome the area of sexual lust in their life, they're not ready to defend back against the enemy's tactics. It's like this, for some of you, Maybe this happened in your life. You didn't have Christ in your life yet. You're not firmly identified. And I'll tell you, you bring a, the enemy brings a little bit of pressure, a little bit of temptation, a little bit of sin in your life, and you don't have God to resist it. You don't have the full armor of God ready. It doesn't take a whole lot to just come crushing down and be destructive in your life. And we see this in marriages all the time. Couples who sat in church services like this for years but never had those encounters and intimacy with God. Never allowed the Spirit of God to become the most important thing in their marriage. Young people who can't even have conversations around this topic. And the truth is the enemy doesn't want us to. 
He doesn't want us to. Because, you know, when, when God comes in and he has filled us with his spirit, given us the full armor of God so that we can resist the enemy's tactics, our marriages can hold strong. Our dating lives can resist the temptations of the devil. We, in our cliques online, can resist pursuing things dishonoring to God. We can know that although we are attracted to things, that is not our identity and does not determine where we give our passion and pursuit and worship and adoration in this lifetime. Because we are filled with the Spirit of God. And we can fight back spiritually no matter what tactic he brings our way. You see why this stuff is so important? Whatever the idol is, in, in uh, Romans, in chapter 2, it talks about the enemy has his best for, for each of us. He knows where we're going to struggle and what's going to make us mad and resist hearing from his word on any particular issue in our life. In the area of sexual idolatry, we got to fight back spiritually. And the way we fight back spiritually is not by judging one another or getting angry with one another or turning towards our spouse and saying they're the problem. The way we fight back spiritually is to hit our knees and pray prayer and say, God, I I can't do this without you. I need your spirit that brings power, love, and self-discipline so I can fight back spiritually in my own life as a young man that struggled with lust in the, in the, the ways that many of you may have struggled in college or in your young adult years. I failed time and time again as a Christian to honor him in my life. And the only thing that ever changed that, that gave me victory and eventually freedom from the enemy's tactics was when I filled myself up with the spirit of God and I would hit my knees in prayer in those moments of weakness. I say, you know, I brought up the soda cans. Anybody ever given up soda before? Like there are many people in American culture that are addicted to soda and it's like you try and give it up and the sugar cravings are very real, but you give it up for a year Five years, you don't even desire it anymore at some point. It feels gross to you. And I believe that's what God can do in this area of sexual idolatry in our life. Point number three, final point I want to make is this. That we have to live for eternity. That that picture of heaven that we got. In fact, this sermon, I was trying to make it that if you want to resist uh, sexual idolatry, you have to join the NFL uh, because it would begin with that acronym. The only problem was my first point uh, began with an M instead of an N. And so I was going to have to say, join the MFL. And then I didn't know what that meant. And so I was like, that's a dumb idea. So I didn't do it. You know? <laughs> uh, but I think that living for eternity in this passage is what really drives this home. Because some of you hear that. You hear that discussion that I have to, God has to be my primary identity. I have to surrender every aspect of my life, including my finances and possessions a couple of weeks ago. Come on, that's not fun. I have to surrender my busyness and my time and my calendar. I have to surrender my sexual life and make him the primary identity first and foremost. I'm out. I I see people all the time who do this. They they hear a message like this, like, I'm out because I can't do that. I I, I have this other identity. I know who I am, and I always have been this way. It's never going to change. Look, I'm not telling you that you will be able to change what you are attracted to. That is not the conversation that we're having. What I'm telling you is that we can determine what we live for, what our primary identity is, what our purpose and first and foremost in our life, and what's the whole point of the sermon series? We will have no other gods. There will be nothing... In this life, 
that we live for first before God. We don't put ourselves in a box and say, God, fit in this box or I'm not going to live for you. We say, I'm going to live for you. You make the box. That's the difficult part of why most Americans, I believe, don't actually pursue God's best in this area because we live in an individualist culture where we control everything in our lives. And to give up that control over to a being that I can't see or feel or touch, I don't want to do that. And I want to tell you, those real moments with God are so real. And what we have done, we've allowed the enemy his attack is to heighten certain things in our culture that I'm, I am a wealthy, successful person. And as I will, I will give God what's left over, but first and foremost, I'm this, or we've heightened the area of our time. I've got to do all these things that I want to do, but I'm not going to make God's going to be the last thing or the area of our sexual life that we've heightened this issue to like the primary thing we live for. And it's just not true. From a biblical Christian perspective, he is the primary thing we live for. In fact, oh man, some of you, you, like, you didn't like me already. You're not going to like this next part. Matthew 22, look what it says here, verse 29. Jesus replied, you are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And he goes on to talk about the resurrection and he's the living God. Did you catch that? It says that we won't be married in heaven. And since in the Bible, sex happens within a covenant marriage relationship, I have to believe that there is no sex in heaven. <laughs> I'm out, right? <laughs> that's right, like that, that's how we feel, but it's because the enemy has taken this thing that God meant for, for procreation and pleasure, and he's taken this thing, and he's like moved it up the ladder like the most important thing. I can't be happy. I can't have fulfillment and purpose unless I have it. We chase it everywhere. We plan our whole days and calendars around it. Some of us to sneak away from our spouse so they won't know it. And like, guys, I want to tell you, stop living that lie. Stop believing that that is what we're meant to live for. We are meant to live for eternity, for God's best. As we close out, remember the picture in the throne room of heaven, Revelation 21. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Can you picture this? What it will be like. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Our primary desire must be him. He must be the driving force of our life because we're going to live for that eternal moment where we're in his presence, that we get to see him and be with him, and there will be no more pain and suffering. No more separation between us and God. And you can always tell this side of heaven when somebody's actually experienced God like that. Because they usually can't help but have tears come to their eyes. Think of the story from, it's a quote from Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. He writes, a guy I know named Alan went around the country asking ministry leaders questions. He went to successful churches and asked the pastors what they were doing why what they were doing was working. It sounded very boring, except for one visit. 
he made to a man named Bill Bright. Bill Bright founded Young Life and was very involved in a number of ministries that impacted young people all over the world. The president, Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry, Alan said he was a big man full of life who listened without shifting his eyes. Alan asked a few questions. I don't know what they were, but as the final question, he asked Dr. Bright what Jesus meant to him. And I think about that throne room of God when he's gonna wipe away every tear. Alan said Dr. Bright could not answer the question. He said Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair behind his big desk and wept. For those of us that the enemy has been winning in the area of sexual idolatry in our life, I want you to know that you were not just created in the image of God, but that he loves you and he's going to pursue you and pursue you and pursue you till your very last breath. And the reason he brings up these things in scripture of how to connect with him and to live for him is because he wants to know you. He wants to epithemia you and he wants you to love him and epithemia him back. And the beautiful thing, no matter what area of struggle we have in our life, if we're honest, if we bring it to him, he forgives and wraps his loving arms around us. And so as we conclude our service, maybe there's some of us here because we have a tendency to think this was for them rather than for us. Maybe there's some of us here in this area of our life then we need to just weep and be thankful for the saving grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ in our life. We need to repent and draw near to the perfect God of creation that loves us. Will you pray with me, God? We acknowledge your presence here again. And, and we all have areas of struggle with this. Some of us, we were exposed to things at a very young age. Some of us were taught things about you and about this area of our life that we haven't found to be fulfilling. And some of us, God, have knowingly run from you. We've turned to other things to fulfill us, to take the place that only you can take, God. We're empty. And when the enemy comes, it, it deals a blow and crushes us. And we don't want that anymore, God. We want to be filled with you and with your spirit. And so we do this beautiful act this morning, God. We come to you and we repent of our sin, our lustful desires, and our sexual idolatry. If that's you in the room, pray this with me silently. God, I, I repent. I start with myself. I ask and receive your forgiveness and grace. I surrender this area of my life to you, and I make you my primary identity more than anything else in this world. We love you, Jesus, and we give you this morning. We pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen.